Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 317. Today's big Bible question, are all people who claim to be Christians actually saved by Jesus, and how can we know? Well, happy Lord's Day, friends. As always on Sunday, I'd love to invite you to join us on Facebook at VBC Salinas. Just go to Facebook and search for that word, that phrase, VBC Salinas, Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, Valley Baptist Church, for a time of worship and digging into the Word of God. Please leave a comment if you drop by, say hello. Our readings for this fine Sunday include 2 Kings 21, Psalm 139, Hosea 14, and Hebrews chapter 3. Now, Hebrews 3 contains the first of three big warning passages in Hebrews. Those passages found in Hebrews 3, 6, and 10 warn those who profess faith in Jesus to not fall away. We have in the past spent several episodes talking about the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved, whether or not you can lose your salvation, quote. And you can actually find links to those episodes on our page today. Just come to BibleReadingPodcast.com, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Click on the show notes for episode 317, and that will take you to uh, the three episodes we did on the issue of Perseverance of the Saints. But I do want to briefly touch on that topic today, but more so to focus on the sobering warnings to those who profess faith and actually talk about how we can know whether or not somebody is a Christian. Because I do not believe that a truly saved by Jesus person will lose their salvation, but I do believe that many who right now profess to be Christians who may even appear to be Christians and who themselves actually might think they are Christians out of ignorance of the word, will not be saved because identifying as a Christian does not mean you are saved any more than identifying as the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers makes you Tom Brady. So what portion of people who identify as Christians are actually saved? Well, of course, there's no way to answer that. Um, But that kind of a question is a really, really big deal in the Bible Belt where I grew up because people sort of automatically in the South, less so today, but still to a great degree, they assume that they are Christians if they're born in the South. Now, in California, my current home state, that is much less the case. Uh, Secularism is much more prominent here, and that might sound like a negative thing to you, but Actually, I think there's a lot less false professors here or false Christians here because there's more of a cost to be a Christian in California than, say, Alabama, for one. And for two, there's much less social pressure to identify as a Christian. So people who aren't Christians in California don't identify that way. But I think probably a lot of people in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, Florida even... Um, they probably do identify as Christians and really don't devote their lives to following Jesus. So Raymond Kwong offers some estimates of people who claim to be Christ followers versus those who actually are. I repeat, there's no way of actually knowing this, but he's going to give us some estimates from various pastors and evangelists. Dr. Dan Hawtrey, an evangelist from Florida, says that around 75% of the church people he's familiar with are probably unsaved. 
His estimate is that only 3% of Americans, and this is from a few years ago, only 3% of Americans are truly followers of Jesus, truly born again. Dr. R.L. Hymers, in his book called The Falling Away, uh, notes that Dr. Chris Well, a pastor of First Baptist Dallas back in the day, said he was he would be surprised if as many as 25% of the members of his church were saved. Billy Graham, years ago, estimated the percentage of lost people in evangelical churches to be around 85%. In other words, Billy Graham, that great evangelist, said that 85% of the people in Bible-believing churches are not Christians. A.W. Tozer went higher than that and said it was 90%. Even Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who you might have heard on the radio um, for years, says that if one out of ten people responding to my invitation to receive Christ uh, are genuine, then I feel like that batting average is pretty good. So, just 10%. It's not easy to distinguish between wheat and tares until the harvest or judgment In thousands of churches, says Dr. McGee, the statistics of souls saved have been very inflated. Now, I concur with much of the above, and in my experience, have noted that many claim to be Christians, but don't really show evidence of that. So I believe there are many who claim Christ, but don't actually follow him, and I believe that the warning passages of Hebrews are very important warnings and sobering challenges to all of us and those people uh, in a particular sort of pointed way. So let's read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all of God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception." For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for forty years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? if not those who disobeyed. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
And so we find in this Hebrews 3 passage, the powerful challenge in verse 13, encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So when was the last time you encouraged or exhorted a fellow Christian to be faithful to the Lord? Or when was the last time you heard somebody else do it? I got to tell you, I've, I've got a lot of Christian friends, many pastors, and it has been exceedingly rare in my life that somebody has come to me and encouraged me to be faithful to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying people don't encourage me. People encourage me all the time. People are very good to me. And, and I try to encourage people all of the time. But I'm talking about that one specific encouragement that we are encouraged to give to other professing believers in Hebrews 3. How often do we encourage each other to be faithful to the Lord? It's happened in my life, but not very often. Barnabas in the Bible is a great example to us of one who lived his life in light of this kind of encouragement. And that's one of his, that's his name. That's what his name means, son of encouragement. And it's one of the reasons why many people, including some prominent listeners to this podcast, ascribe the authorship of Hebrews to him. We hear this about Barnabas in Acts 11, 20 through 24, which says, There were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Well, here's five do you knows along these lines. Did you know that it's possible to receive the grace of God in vain? In other words, we are exposed to God's grace, but it doesn't benefit us. Second Corinthians 6, 1, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 says, uh, 15, 1 and 2 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, it's possible to hear and have a kind of response to the word of God that is a response that's in vain. Maybe it's a one-time sort of emotional response. Yeah, I'll do that. Sort of like listening to, I don't know, this is a sloppy uh, sort of illustration that I'm just going to make up off the top of my head, but I think it communicates. Just don't read too much into it. Imagine you are at the mall and you see a fitness coach there and who's demonstrating a workout machine or a smash diet or something and you say, yeah, now's the time. I'm going to get in shape finally. And then you go home and you forget it and you keep eating your donuts and living your life and, and you don't get in shape. Well, that's hearing an exhortation 
in vain. And I think it's possible to have that kind of emotional, yeah, buddy, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. But it's it's just a, uh, we're going to talk about roots here in a minute. It's a, it's a rootless response. It's a quick emotional, yeah, I'll do that. But then you, it has no meaning to it because it's not a lifetime commitment. It's a fleeting little flitty thing. And that's what Paul's talking about here receiving the grace of God in vain. So it's possible to do that. Did you know that converts to Christ can fall under the condemnation of the devil? 1 Timothy 3 says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Did you know that it's possible to hear the gospel and receive it with joy and show evidence of following Jesus and yet still fall away, which is what I was just talking about. Mark 4, 16 and 17 says... These are the ones, the people, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word of God, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. Did you know that you can appear godly in most every way, but by your very life deny the power of God? Again, 2 Timothy 3, 5 talks about people who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And did you know that Jesus and Paul both warn of the possibility of apostasy falling away from belief and say that a massive apostasy will come before the end of times? Matthew 24.10 and 2 Thessalonians 2.3 both talk about that massive falling away from the faith, from people who profess and proclaim that they are followers of Jesus. I believe that one of the great errors of evangelicalism of the past maybe 150 or so years is that we have encouraged and taught and sought in our preaching after one-time-in-the-moment decisions, seeking converts to walk the aisles and commit to Christ in a moment. Don't get me wrong, in a lot of ways, that's a good thing. In many ways, but far too often, though, churches have chalked up a win when somebody walks the aisles and moved on to the next service, the next outreach, or the next conversation, looking for another convert to walk the aisles or pray the prayer. We've sought after one-time decisions while neglecting to emphasize the day-in and day-out following of Christ the way the Bible does. It's good to call people to make decisions for Christ, but that's the beginning, as our Hebrews passage points us to today. So in verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, We are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Verse 14 says something very similar. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. So you see there, it's not focused on a one-time decision, but on a day-to-day walk with Christ. And this passage in Hebrews finds an echo in many other New Testament passages, including 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, which we've already read, and where Paul says... Um, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if 
you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It's not that Hebrews and 1 Corinthians 15 and the other passages are teaching us a process salvation that unfolds over time, but rather they are showing us that the proof that one is in Christ is found in the fruit of a lifetime pursuit of him. Thus we are called to be faithful, holding on to the Savior who holds on to us daily, pursuing him who first loved and pursued us daily, and warning and encouraging others to do the same. We know we are in Christ when we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and when we pursue our Jesus, when we pursue Jesus holding on to the message day by day by day by day, his Spirit working in us and enabling us to per- persevere in faithful following of Christ is the proof and the seal of Christ's salvation. So friends, take these sobering warnings to heart. Examine yourself, says Paul elsewhere to see that you are in the faith. How do you do that? Well, are you walking in Christ today? That's a good sign because following Christ is a day-to-day thing. And do the Barnabas thing with each other. We need encouragement daily, says Hebrews, and follow through with that. Encourage each other daily to follow after Christ. And I think you walking in that And me walking in that will cause our lives to be very, very fruitful indeed. Well, let's continue into 2 Kings chapter 21, where we will find a king that is the very opposite of fruitful in almost every way. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished the altars for Baal. He made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had, had said, Jerusalem is where I will put my name. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He sacrificed his son in the fire, practiced witchcraft and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. Manasseh set up the carved image of Asherah, which he made in the temple that the Lord had spoken about to David and his son Solomon. I will establish my name forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will never again cause the feet of the Israelites to wander from the land I gave to their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do all I have commanded them, the whole law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen." Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, since King Manasseh of Judah has committed all these detestable acts, worse evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done, and by means of his idols has also caused Judah to sin, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line used on Samaria and the mason's level used on the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. 
I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will become plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have angered me from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until today. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. This is was in addition to his sin that he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. The rest of the events of Manasseh's reign, along with his, all his accomplishments and the sin that he committed, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in the garden of his own house, the Garden of Uzzah. His son Ammon became king in his place. Ammon was 22 years when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamath, daughter of Haruz. She was from Jotba. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways of his father, had walked and served the idols his father had served, and he bowed in worship to them. He abandoned the Lord God of his ancestors and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Ammon's servants conspired against him and put him, the king, to death in his own house. The common people killed all who had conspired against King Ammon, and they made his son Josiah king in his place. The rest of the events of Ammon's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. He was buried in his tomb in the Garden of Uzzah, and his son Josiah became king in his place. Psalm chapter 139, verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. You who invoke who invoke you deceitfully, your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Amen. Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. 
Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I am like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Let whoever is wise understand these things, and whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Yes, Lord. Amen. Well, dear friends, thank you for listening today. May the hand of the Lord be with you. May he guide you. May you walk in his wisdom and love his word and be fruitful and persevering. May you be encouraged in your faith today. Pursue Jesus wholeheartedly, for he died for you, and he loved you first, and he pursued you first. Good day to you, and Godspeed.